Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the youth director here at Sardis Fellowship Baptist Church. This week, Pastor Tim Voth is continuing in our sermon series through the book of Jonah. Thank you for listening, and enjoy. Man, okay, so I'm Tim. I'm the community life pastor here at Sardis, and um, I wanted to start our time with a question. And the question is, have you ever been on a journey? Have you ever been going somewhere and you had to turn around? Have you ever been going somewhere and you have a plan, you have a trajectory, you have a way that you want to go, and it doesn't go how you thought, and you have to stop and completely turn around? Has anyone ever had that experience? Probably yes. Um, So me and my family last, uh, three weeks ago, we got to go to Sunny Bray Bible Camp, which is at Shuswap Lake, and it was an awesome time. We spent a week there. It was amazing. We got to um, ride horses and you know, shoot bow and arrows, archery, that's the word I was looking for. Uh, We got to uh, hang out with other ministry families. It was for ministry workers and eat meals with other people in fellowship. And it was a great time. And um, I got to play a lot of pickleball. And it makes me feel really old admitting that I loved it. It was so good. Let's go pickleball. So that's the new thing. Um, It was great. I wouldn't say it was restful because um, we were all in a room together, me and my, my wife and four kids. And it wasn't restful, but it was awesome. Good family time. But many of you know that, or some of you know that the year before uh, wasn't so great because we tried to go to the same Bible camp and we got our van all packed up. We were driving there um, and somewhere between hope and merit, our van completely exploded. So just, you know, the heat engage went like from middle to totally overheated in like a few seconds steam everywhere. We had to pull over, open the hood, eventually realized that the heating line, one of the heating lines completely blew up and there was, all the coolant was gone. There's no fixing it on the side of the road. Um, so it had to be towed. And so we were in an area with no reception. So we spent at least six or seven hours on the Coquihalla. So it wasn't as fun as family camp, but it was still family time. It's just extremely stressful family time. But we, we, by God's grace, made it home. Um, And then I had this plan. I'm like, I'm going to get up as early as possible, go get a part, and like fix the van, and we're going to try again. And so I get a part, I fix the van, I test drive it, it's all good. We try again the next day, and another heating line explodes. And so we're like, this mission is cursed. It's cursed. We're not going anymore. Dodge Grand Caravans are cursed. I'm convinced of it. And we just, we're like, no, we can't go. So we turn back. We were forced to turn back um, and go back home. And that's kind of the experience similar, not exactly the same, that Jonah had, the reluctant prophet, where he turned from God, he's running from God, and if you remember, he is forced to turn around. He gets stopped over and over and over again, and he hits dead ends until he finally hits rock bottom and he has to turn around. Um, And so maybe you've had experiences like that. But there's other ways to turn around from a journey, and that's what we experienced this last week. We had planned for a long time to go to Kelowna, and then we looked, and it was completely on fire, And we thought, that's horrible and sad and probably not wise to go there. And so we decided we're not going to go to Kelowna last week. Um, And so that's one way that you can turn as well. You can look ahead, you can see disaster, and you can see destruction, and you can intentionally say, I'm not going to go that way. You don't just have to hit rock bottom or be forced to turn around. You can actually look ahead and go, there's disaster and destruction, I'm going to turn away. And so that's actually how one character that we're going to look at this morning turned around from their journey. Um, We looked at Jonah a couple weeks ago, but today we're going to be looking at the king of Nineveh. 
how he looked ahead, he saw destruction, and he willfully turned from it. And so I want to talk about turning, how we can turn in what biblical language would be called repentance. And it's not a super popular word. It's not really a word we use in our culture. It's kind of one of those Christian-y, bible words, repentance. But it, it, in a nutshell, means to turn, to turn away, to turn from and to turn towards. And I want to talk about um, how we can have life-giving repentance. And life-giving repentance is a turn from destruction and a turn towards God that leads to a revived life. I think we all need revival in our own lives. We all need refreshing. And I think all of us here in our own ways need to repent and need to turn from evil towards God. And we might think of repentance as like a one-time thing that I've turned from evil, I've turned towards God, and I'm good now. But it's actually a lifelong journey. It's kind of like, uh, if you remember what Martin Luther, you know, he pinned the thing on the door back in church history. The top line was, um, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said to repent, he meant it as a lifelong repentance. Our whole lives are a turning from evil, turning towards God over and over again. And when we do that, we actually have a revived and refreshed life and walk with God. Um, and so we're going to be talking about that. And to do that, um, yeah, let's, let's turn to Jonah 3, if you have your Bible here. Um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. There, that's how you can remember it. Bible college, it was worth the thousands of dollars for that little song. Um, Or you can just search it on your phone, which is always easier. Uh, (laughs) But Jonah, chapter 3. So we remember Jonah 1. Joel preached through that, and and Jonah had his kind of Dodge Grand Caravan uh, Coca-Cola moment. He hits rock bottom, and he turns back. And then chapter 2, Dave Lee preached in there, and that's where Jonah actually turns. He's in the belly of the fish. He turns towards God. And now we pick up in chapter 3, where Jonah is uh, literally puked up onto the dry land. That's what it says. Jonah is vomited out of the fish, and he's back on dry land. And so chapter 3, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, says this. So then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so, uh, again, God hasn't given up on Jonah. His calling and mission in Jonah's life is the exact same as it was before. Just because Jonah had his ups and downs and his rock bottoms, uh, God wasn't done with him yet. And God wasn't done with Nineveh. Remember, uh, Joel went in detail about the horrors and destruction and the evil that, that Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was inflicting upon the whole world. God wasn't done with Nineveh, though. He didn't want to just destroy them. He wanted to rescue them. And so he still has a heart for Jonah and a heart for Nineveh. And the message, if you compare it to chapter 1, is the same. Go. Go to Nineveh. Arise. Go. And, and tell them what I have to tell you. And so, verse 3, Jonah arose. Okay, so maybe you remember chapter 1. Jonah arose, and he turned, and he fled from God. So what's he going to do? Jonah arose. Is he going to run again? He has a second chance. No, he goes. He goes to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And we might think, yes, awesome success. That means that Jonah, in his repentance, is a completely new person, totally turned around, perfect guy who now obeys God all the time, which might not actually be the case, as we'll see. But he's at least going. He's going to Nineveh now, and maybe he's like, well, I just don't want to be destroyed, and I tried running away anyway, so I guess I'll go to Nineveh. We don't really know, but he's on his way now. And it says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. 
and Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey. So he gets about a third of the way in, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so there he is. He's there. He's finally made it. He's, he's saying the message. It's happening. He may be nervous. He may be scared. He may be resigned. I don't know, but he's saying the message. And he says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And to us, that's eight words, but in the Hebrew, it's actually just a five-word sermon. And so I think if, if I came up here today and I just said a five-word sermon, maybe you'd be happy about that. You'd get to go eat lunch sooner. Um, but I love this picture. Jonah is like covered in puke. He's got seaweed all around him. He's just like loser prophet, this lousy guy, and he stands there and he's like, five-word sermon, I'm out of here. Like, that's it. And then he like mic drop and he walks away. Um, and like, just imagine if I preached a five-word sermon, but the content even is a bit intense. Imagine if I came up here this morning and I said, you're all going to hell. Like, can you imagine? That was my sermon. I got up here, you're all going to hell, and I sit down. What would be missing from that message? <laughs> I'm sincerely asking, what would be missing from that? Gospel, Yes. God's love, yes. Uh, forgiveness, yes. Anything about God at all is missing from that. Um, any proof that that's true, anything that we could do about it is missing from, like there's so much missing from Jonah's message, it's crazy. He just goes in and says, you're all going to be destroyed, I'm out of here. And so what do you do with that? He's like this reluctant prophet. And, um, and what... What do you think Nineveh's response would be? If some guy came in, this lousy prophet, five-word sermon of judgment, what, what would Nineveh do? I think Nineveh would probably ignore him, laugh at him, cast him off, or probably like, try to find him and kill him and snuff him out because he's not making any sense. Um, and so here's what, actually they, here's what he does. Here's what, he actually, here's what Nineveh does. The people of Nineveh believed God. Okay, so it happens. They believe God. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So there's full-blown revival in the entire city of Nineveh because of Jonah's lousy little five-word sermon. Like they actually believe God and God works a miracle through Jonah to these people. And it's like Dave Lee said last week, God uses Jonah even in his failures, even in his hard-heartedness, and even in his... Um, tragic life and his half or one-third uh, obedience to God. He uses him. And there's a revival that breaks out and they put on sackcloth, which is like, they make themselves uncomfortable. They fast to show their seriousness that they actually want to turn. They actually want to believe in God. And then we, we keep reading. Verse six. Now the word of the, the word reached the king of Nineveh. Okay, so picture this, your kingdom there's, there's widespread uh, revival happening to this random foreign god. And now it reaches the king. And that's trouble. Because the king has all the power. The king basically thinks that they're god in this culture. He's sitting on a throne. He's got royal robes. They, he's a god amongst the pantheon of gods. And there's this random god that's threatening his power. What do you think the king of Nineveh is going to do? What would you do? Maybe snuff it out. Stop this revival. Find Jonah. Kill him. Whatever you have to do. Just stop this. But look what happens. He arose. Okay, again, parallel to Jonah. He arose. What's he going to do? Turn from God? Find Jonah, kill him? No. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, his markings of deity. 
he covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. Ashes, the symbol of mortality and death. He repents. He humbles himself. He sees the destruction that's coming and, and he intentionally turns away from it and humbles himself and he repents. And even more so, he issued a proclamation and published uh, through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herds nor flocks, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. I don't know how you get animals to not do any of that, but he's, he's declaring it. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There is full-blown revival happening. Cows are repenting. This is crazy. There's animals that are like covered in sackcloth and there's like, it's just this full-blown crazy thing. Now there's a lot of Farmers in Chilliwack, I don't know if your cows have ever repented. I don't know, if, I don't know if what they need to repent of, but I don't know if you've ever put sackcloth on them or made, them not, or made your animals fast. This is crazy. What you're supposed to see from this is this is full-blown, crazy revival, and this king is serious. He means business. No one eat. No one do anything. We are turning back to God. He's serious. He means it. And listen what God does. God might see this and go, You're too late. You know, you've been so evil in this world. I don't care what you're doing. I'm going to snuff you out. But listen to what God says. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Success. Okay, Jonah goes. Revival happens. Everyone turns to God, and God doesn't punish them. This is like the biggest revival in history. Jonah should be celebrating. But I'll leave chapter 4 to you to go home and read and see his bizarre, perplexing response, his non-celebration. Okay, so go read it and try to figure out what's happening, and Rod's going to preach on that next week. But what are we to learn of this crazy story? Um, it's, I think Jonah is supposed to be a mirror. So the book of Jonah is about the king. The book of Jonah is about Jonah. And if you look at the structure of the book, chapter 1 is about, Jonah, is about um, these pagans turning to God. Chapter 2 is about Jonah in the belly of the fish. Chapter 3 here is about pagans turning to God. And chapter 4 is about Jonah again. So there's some uh, symmetry there. So I think from chapter 3, what we're supposed to do is learn from the king of Nineveh. We're supposed to see it like a mirror. and, And this is about God, and it's about you, and it's about me, and it's about repentance. And we're supposed to learn from the king of Nineveh what it looks like to sincerely, genuinely repent and turn towards God. And so I think in order to do that, uh, I want to start just by talking about repentance as a turn from. So repentance is a turn, first and foremost, from something. You're turning. You're turning away from destruction. So let's look at what the king of Nineveh turns from. Verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And so it's really interesting in the book of Jonah because the word evil and the word destruction are the same word, actually. And so the king is turning away from evil and destruction simultaneously. And I think we probably need to talk about um, something that will make you super popular at any party, um, God's fierce anger against evil humanity. So just bring that up the next uh, party you're at and you'll be the life of the party. But no, we need to talk about uh, evil and what it is and I think what we can see from this is that 
in evil, in turning away from God, there's innate destruction. To turn away from God towards evil, there's destruction that happens. Um, God created this world. He created everything and he created it good. And he loves his creatures. And when anything goes against that and harms his creatures and destroys his creation and takes what he's created and tries to uncreate it and it goes towards chaos and destruction and God being the God of justice, the God who is perfectly just, he looks at that and he gets angry because I picture it kind of like a mother bear and there it has its cubs, right? And it loves those cubs. But if you try to mess with those cubs, it's going to get angry. And it's going to get rightly angry because it's trying to protect these cubs. And so God's fierce anger is actually his steadfast love meeting with evil and injustice. He's not just angry for no reason. His love uh, draws him to, to be fierce and angry to destroy what's destroying his creation. And you see stories of that all throughout the Old Testament where God is wiping out nations and taking people out because they're trying to uncreate what God has created. And he feels angry about that. And it would be actually wrong if he didn't feel angry about that. Like, think of, think of the Israelites. Nineveh, uh, I mean, uh, Assyria is coming. They're taking out your town. They're slaughtering your babies, dashing them to pieces. They're raping the women. They're killing everybody. And they're dragging you out of the city by the nose with hooks and you're naked. And they're, and they're lighting everything on fire. Do you think you would feel a little slight bit of anger at them? Like, that that's unjust? That's like a sliver or a hint of what God feels at injustice. He, he has rightful anger against injustice. And I think we see it too. If, if we see anything in the media or news where horrible stuff is happening to innocent people, like children, like it makes your blood boil, right? Like how could people do that? And we feel rightly angry at that. And God infinitely more. Um, but I don't think he delights in that. And I think ultimately what he would have rather than just destroy his creation and destroy his creatures is to have them turn to him so that they can actually participate with him in covenantal life and in recreation and in all the beauty and joy that God is and the life-giving being that he is. He wants them to actually participate in that. He doesn't want to destroy people. He wants them to turn, just like the king of Nineveh, Nineveh. But there are things I think that make us not turn from our evil. Just like the king turned from his evil, there's things that we can actually do to make us not want to turn from that destruction, even though we know it leads to destruction. I think it's easy to look out there and say the world is evil, people are evil, and maybe deserving of anger, who knows, but I think when the spotlight of justice is turned on us, it's a very different story. And we can start to become moral relativists very quickly, and we can start to justify our evil very quickly. I'll give you an example of that. Um, I'll stick with driving analogies, just to stick with the theme. But uh, this summer, we, were, we went to the, the zoo. It was fun. We uh, met people there, and it was a lot of fun. And on the way back, it was one of those rare moments where everyone in the van was asleep except me. So all four kids asleep, uh, my wife Jenna asleep, and I'm just driving. And it's like, this is peaceful. This is amazing. Um, and so I pull off the highway onto Prest, that exit, and the light's yellow, and it goes red, but I'm like, I'm fine, and I, I just make a slight rolling stop, go right, okay? Confession. Um, and so I'm like, oh, this is great. But then the sirens go off behind me. I'm like, oh, who's that for? Uh, <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, that's for me. And I pull over 
And so I got a ticket, okay? But so here's the thing. I love that there are traffic laws and I love that there are people who enforce them. But do you think that's what I was thinking in that moment? <laughs> no, uh, I was thinking, um, I was thinking a lot of things. <laughs> but I was thinking like, that was so minor. Like, why are you pulling me over? Aren't there bigger crimes going on that you could do? You know, and I'm, I'm thinking like, it was barely a rolling stop. And I had time because the light takes a few seconds to turn green. And thanks for waking up my whole family. Like, that's great. Can't you have some grace on me and like not give me a ticket because the situation. So I think we do that a lot. I think as soon as the spotlight um, is turned on us, we're really good at eking our way out of justice, right? We're really good at making excuses for ourselves. And I think that that's what actually, one of the things that present, or prevents us from repenting. We see a path of destruction. We know we're going down it. But for some reason, the rules don't apply to us. I'm not that bad. Other people are worse than me. It's fine in this situation. It's okay because of A, B, and C. And we start to justify our evil. And we cannot be like the king of Nineveh because we don't have soft hearts. And we don't just agree with God and say, you're right, you're right, I'm evil, I need to turn. And so we can justify our evil. But there's other things that I think can prevent us from being like the king of Nineveh and turning. Um, and I think one of them is that God, I think, likes to get uncomfortably specific when it comes to our sins. Um, and he doesn't just say, you're evil, turn. I think he gets like very specific and personal when it comes to our sins. So listen again to verse 8. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So he says evil, but he says violence. And maybe you don't struggle with violence, um, but Syria did. And violence was a particular sin of theirs that they were known for. Like their whole kingdom advanced through violence. Uh, They secured their borders through violence. They held their enemies at bay through violence. Violence, and they got good at it. Violence was a part of who they were so closely attached to them that it was basically their, their identity. Violence was a part of who they were. Now imagine the king saying, let's give up our violence. Like what would that actually do to a kingdom if there was no more violence? They might not be a kingdom for very long. They might not be able to protect their borders. They might not be able to punish their enemies. Like violence was a big deal for them. They needed it to keep their system going and to keep... Um, keep everyone alive in their kingdom, right? So violence was a vital part of who they were, and yet this king says, forget it, let go of it. Let's not do it anymore. Come what may, I don't know. We might all get slaughtered, we might, but it's not worth it, it's wrong. And he gives it up, he gives up his violence. And I think that when God speaks to us about our sins, he gets very uncomfortably specific, and I'll give you a story of that. Um, When I was in high school, um, I wasn't a believer yet, I didn't, Uh, put my faith and trust in Jesus and part of my high school experience was that I was I'll just say it I had a whole like a foul mouth I was just like really crude joker and I was also a compulsive liar and so but it was fun being around my friends to say horrible things and and laugh about it and be mean to people is awful Um, and also to make up stories that were hilarious and silly and I think my intention in a lot of it was just to make people laugh and to be silly and to kind of get people to like me as well. Um, But then God started getting a hold of my life and he started drawing me towards him and I started thinking about him and I remember specifically reading in Ephesians. I was just curious about what this Bible was all about and I remember it said 
Uh, Let there be no more filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And I remember thinking, that's impossible. (laughs) I I I don't actually know what it would even mean to give that up. How can you give up crude joking? What would that mean for your social life and making friends? And like, I couldn't do that. I remember thinking that. But then God slowly got more a hold of my heart, and I'm like, I know I have to. I want to even. I want to give that up. It's not right, and it's not good, and it doesn't lead to life. But it was, there was a cost. There was a social cost to giving up that sin. You know, every, all my friends joking around, and I'm there, and I'm like, I just thought of something really funny, but I can't say it, and I don't want to say it. Or a friend coming up to me and saying, um, hey, remember that, like, hilarious thing that happened to you? And I'd have to sheepishly be like, I actually made that up. That didn't actually happen. That was a lie. And it was like there was a, a social cost to turning away from my sin. And I think that's the same with us. I think sometimes we so closely identify with our sins that they become a part of our identity to the point where we think, I couldn't live if I didn't do that. How would I live if I didn't do that? And I don't know what God with his spotlight, with his finger might be putting on your heart, maybe even right now, of something that you know specifically, this is a challenge for me. This is a sin of mine. Um, I don't know what he's putting on your heart to maybe let go of but don't believe the lie that it's so a part of your identity that you can't let it go. You can let it go. And you will find freedom and joy and identity in God far beyond what your sins give you. So whether it's a sin of the mouth, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's slandering people, maybe it's some sort of a business practice, maybe it's an ad, a heart attitude, a mindset. I don't know what it is. I don't know what God's putting on your heart, maybe even right now, but that if you cling to that, it can stop you from turning from it. Don't cling to it. Turn away from it, and there will be life on the other side of it. And so there's other things I think that stop us from repenting. Um, Another one is that we think there's time. And so if we look at Jonah, he kind of ran out God's patience as much as he could. Like he ran and ran, and he thought there was time to turn, and he hit rock bottom. Um, But the thing is, you don't actually have to hit rock bottom before you turn. Look at the king of Nineveh. Again, learn from him. He was actually given 40 days, but he didn't take them up on it. As soon as he heard, he had a soft heart and he said, no, uh, there's no time today. Today is always the day of repentance. It's always now. Don't leave, don't leave sins. Don't leave it. Don't think that there's time. No one knows their day or hour when they're going to pass away. Don't wait. And don't wait for sins to so destroy your life that you're at a rock bottom before you turn from them. Like we've seen, you know, where, where a couple, a spouse just kind of stands up and walks out and the other spouse is just blindsided. I didn't see this coming. It's like, well, maybe if we had soft hearts and day by day we were listening to God, what do you want me to turn from? We wouldn't be blindsided by stuff like that. Or maybe with our kids, we don't have to wait till they grow up and hate us before we, you know, soften our hearts and love them and, and turn towards God and, and have a relationship with them and confess to him and like there are ways that we don't have to wait until it's too late to turn to God. The time is always now for repentance. And we can learn that from the king of Nineveh. And finally, um, what can prevent us from turning to him is that we might think that we've done it so many times and we're not finding freedom from the sin and there's just no point. It won't change anything. Um, And if you look at the life of Jonah, like I alluded to earlier, he did repent. He turned. In the belly of the fish, he turned. But was he perfect afterwards? No, please go read chapter four, okay? You will see that he was not perfect. Something in his life changed, 
but he still had areas of his life that needed to change. And if you look at the king of Nineveh, just please go Wikipedia, Assyrian history. Do you think that they ever used violence again? Yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. In history, Assyria still, maybe it wasn't that king. Maybe he died and another king took over and the people kept doing violence. But they repeated their sins. They repeated them uh, again and again. But that didn't stop them from turning towards God in a sincere way. And I think what we can learn from that is that it's not about how good you repent. It's not about how good you turn or how perfectly you turn. It's about how good and perfect the one you turn towards is. Amen to that, right? Because we can't earn it. It's not about us earning our way back to God. It's we turn and we turn towards him. And who do we find when we turn towards him? And that's what I want to focus on this last little bit of my time here. We turn towards God. When we turn away from our sins, so just in a nutshell, God puts a spotlight on a specific sin in our hearts and we agree with him. Yes, that's wrong. We confess that. I'm sorry, God. And then turning is a genuine, I don't want to live that life anymore and I don't want to do that anymore. It's just a genuine turn away from that. But when we do that, we turn towards God. And who is that God? I love in Jonah that he says, who knows, maybe this God will turn and relent. And he does. And he does. And in order to see our assurance of that, I want to I wanna quickly turn to a story, another story about robes and cattle and turning and rock bottoms. And it's a story that you may know. It's a parable by Jesus about this loving father and his two sons. And just to paraphrase it, there's this father It's found in Luke 15. And there's these two sons. And one of them says, I kind of want all your money. I know an inheritance is coming to me, but I want your money now and I want to go spend it. And the father says, okay. And the son goes and he spends it and he lives a wild life of evil and he spends all his money and he, he hits rock bottom, but he's not dead yet. It's not too late. And the son in the middle of his rock bottom, he, he has a moment where he turns. He comes to his senses and he turns and he says, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to go back. And so he turns, but his repentance isn't perfect because on the way back to his father, he does what we kind of do sometimes. We have this whole inner dialogue. He's like, okay, I know I'm not worthy to be your son anymore, but maybe you can hire me back and maybe you can. And we go like, I know I'm not as loved anymore by you, God. Like, I know I've failed you and so you don't love me like as much. Um, And like, I promise I'll try to not do it again. And we have this whole inner dialogue when we turn back to God. And that's what this guy has, this whole inner dialogue. But when he turns towards God, what does he find? He doesn't, or when he turns towards his father, he doesn't find a father that has arms crossed, tapping his foot, saying like, finally, or you know, again, really? What does he find? And I think that's where the story picks up. In Luke 15, it says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, he starts his whole speech that he had been preparing. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And and the father just cuts him off. He's like, I don't care about your story. The father said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. The calves in this story aren't as lucky. They get slaughtered. Uh, Kill it. Uh, Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
And so they began to celebrate. And I think what I can draw from that and what we can learn from that is that it's not about how good that sun turned. I think when we take one clumsy, stupid step towards God, he's already in full sprint at us. Like it's just, it's just one tiny turn. And I don't know if it's in your mind or your heart or where you're at, but one turn and he's already full sprint towards you, filled with compassion. And we can be assured of his forgiveness. When we turn away, he says, I forgive you. I love you. You're fully restored. There's no like you have to earn this back. There's no you're at a lower um, level now. It's just full acceptance, full love, full compassion. And we can be assured of that because there's another story about thrones and robes and a king coming from his throne, mingling in the dust and dirt with us, God's own son. He stepped off of his throne, right? He removed his royal robes of deity and he came and he met with us in the mortality and the dust and the dirt. And he took the evil and the destruction that our lives are going towards and he took that on himself on the cross so that we could have full assurance that we are loved. The moment we turn from our sins, we're forgiven, we're loved, and we find a compassionate God. So that's what happens. That's what happens when we turn towards God. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you think God might be like, but this is what he's like. He relents from disaster. He loves you. The king of Nineveh knew it, and I wonder if you know it. And so I want to call the band back up again, the worship team, if you could come on up as I say this kind of closing thought. Um, there's, there's, I think, one other reason that, at least from this story, that can stop us from turning to God and stop us from repenting, which is our pride. Um, we often forget about the older, the older kid in that story, the older brother. So there's a big celebration going on, and, and he's just outside, arms folded. He's invited to the party, but he's like, no, I've been good my whole life. I don't need to go in there. Why have you never thrown a celebration for me? And his father pleads with him, come into the party, join the celebration. And it's like the, the king of Nineveh, he could have stayed on his throne. He had all the reason to stay on his throne. He has power, he has status, he has pride. He could have said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. But we have to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves, not let our pride get in the way of entering the celebration, of entering the revival that was happening in Nineveh Don't let your pride get in the way of entering the celebration and the revival. And so as we close here, I want us to um, sing this next song. And as we're singing it, be thinking, what might God be specifically putting on my heart that I need to turn from? And let's celebrate the God that we turn towards, that he's full of compassion and love for us. So let's stand and let's worship together. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.